0: Hello, Freedom Pack family. Welcome back to today's show, an episode 51. Now, we promised you guys that big things were coming to the Freedom Pack podcast. Well, listen to what we have got for you today. We are joined by Nick Yaris at... Nick Yarris. Nick was a subject of the monster. Netflix documentary. The Fear of 13. As well as being the best selling author. Of 7 Days to Live My Life. Nick spent 22 years. 8,057 days. To be exact. In one of the most brutal. Prisons in America. Whilst he was on death row having been charged with the rape and murder of Linda May Craig. To cut a long story short, Nick was wrongly convicted, and DNA testing in 2003 proved Nick's innocence, and he was released when he was 42 years old. On today's podcast, we speak with Nick to discuss his story, all things freedom. But before we start, if you guys enjoy today's episode, the only thing we ask is please, could you leave us a rating and review as it helps us so much with the visibility of the podcast. Thank you so much. So let's jump straight into it. This is an emotional episode. Nick Yarris, welcome to the Freedom Pact.
1: Thank you for, uh, for this opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. And it's, it's a nice feeling that I had such a great connection to the United Kingdom for living there for 12 years. It feels like every time I interact with people from the United Kingdom, I'm just talking to people I love and know. It's a, it's a strange thing when you've lived somewhere, that feeling, Oh, there's my, my, my people. Like that's nice. You know?
0: We are obviously called the Freedom Pact. When we dug into your story, you were probably one of the most proven people in this world, the most qualified. You spent 8,057 days in prison. What does freedom mean to you right now, Nick?
1: It means purpose you have the freedom in your life every day to find a purpose about who you are. I currently drive a taxi cab 12 hours a night from 5 p.m. till 5 a.m. And I found from doing this one interaction in my community how much purpose I can get in one day. And that's the extremity of what you can do with your freedom if you think about it. Because you're really free to turn off social media's impact on your negativity. You're really free to turn off the negative impact of your close friends or or family who are doing destructive things. You, freedom is really a measure of your ego if you think about it. Because people with a a poor sense of themselves and an ego that's out of control feel like they are free to act any way they want. Treating freedom like a luxury. And when you treat your life like a luxury, it will fall apart in a heartbeat. People don't understand that freedom is a gift for many of us from birth because the whole world isn't free. A lot of us are born into tyranny and hardship and struggle. And the only freedom that we'll ever know is in our minds. So if you think about it, Freedom is like a currency of money. Its development is handed to you at birth. And from there, you expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. It's really important to understand this for people in North Korea who are are born without freedom. And their only imagined freedoms are the ones they might catch a glimpse from, from way far away. But yet, on the Western society... I've seen people pissed out of their head on alcohol, shouting how they didn't give a shit about their freedom. And they were willing. This is why I warn people. The most precious commodity you will ever own in life is your anger. Your anger will cost you everything. Your freedom, your livelihood, your friends. Your anger is like this very concentrated poison that you carry around in your pocket and you threaten the whole world to drink it in front of them and go berserk if things don't go your way. And if you don't learn how to treat your anger like a precious commodity, your freedom is absolutely meaningless. You could walk around the streets in any big developed society, be as free as you want to have a luxury car and all that. But in one blink of your anger, you can lose everything. I had a young man get in my taxi yesterday. About six foot four, well-built young man, black gentleman, and in a predominantly white area where I live in Oregon in the United States. It would be no hardship for him to find troubles. And yet this young man got in the car and he said by the start of the evening, he was out looking for trouble. And I said, why, man? Don't you understand how precious your anger is? And when I got done explaining to him how precious his anger was, he swore to me he was going to treat it like it was gold and that no one was going to get him to spend his gold, man. I was so proud of that moment because that's what I've been doing. Lewis, I realized when I had an opportunity to write the book the kindness approach. There's an image on the front cover from Ilchester, Somerset. And the history of that town is that it was once a Roman prison town. The occupants were punished by not being allowed to cross the river. I thought it was so beautiful that I was living in a prison in Somerset. But there I was as free as I could ever be To be in love and have these two girls in my life and walk around Yeovil and hold hands with Laura. That's the point, man. Your freedom is your mindset, your ego and who you hold yourself to be. And if you squander it, it doesn't matter if they lock you up. You're going to walk around in the shittiest prison you could ever be in.
0: Does it irritate you? when so much of your freedom has been robbed from you does it irritate you when you see people that take their freedom for granted
1: nope because that's the point who am i to take it personally for someone else not getting it they broke my face they broke my body they beat the ego out of me and it allowed me to finally see this you know it's so strange i i i try very hard to get people to tap into the good because at the time of your birth you're already dying man i love this notion that at the day that you were born you were given so many heartbeats Physiologically, your heart's only going to beat so many times. And when I realized that, I thought, that's it. I'm not going to squander my heartbeats in anger. I'm not going to use them up in rage. And I damn sure ain't going to waste my heartbeats hating someone else, man. And when I started to think that way, it gave me a true sense of freedom over all the tyranny of my life. Like I I really decided, alright, so I'm only going to have so many days and so many heartbeats. I'm damn sure not going to sit here thinking about someone who did me wrong, man. And if someone else doesn't get it, shame on them.
2: Nick, can you remember the first time, was there a point in your mind that you can remember when you realized that your freedom, it was about to be taken away or or it it was threatened to be taken away? Can you remember your motions at the time and and how you you dealt with something like that initially?
1: It was December 20th, 1981, and um, a very young public defender was standing next to me before a judge. I was arrested and charged with the attempted murder of a police officer in the city of Chester, Pennsylvania. The public defender standing next to me was only like four or five years older than me. I was only 20 and he turned to me and he said, you know, Mr. Yarris, if you're convicted of these charges, you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. Right. And I looked at him in disbelief that like, that's not even real because there was no connection between my actions and someone telling me that was it. My freedom was going to be taken forever for the rest of my life. And I hadn't even been charged with a homicide or put on trial and sentenced to die. So the shock of that moment sent me into the darkest possible funk. And I capitulated and fell in on myself and hated myself so much. That's what led to all of this damaging lie that I then told. See, the moment you realize you've truly lost your freedom, you fall apart. Like, You can't believe that something that you enjoyed so much and felt so secure was yours is now gone forever, man. You'll never have it again. But then, human beings are remarkable creatures. We have the ability to create in our minds what's not there. We're the only beings that have the ability to feel empathy for each other from afar. That's a phenomenon. We can feel the pain of another human being without ever having met them. I used that gift like we all do when we hit the wall or hit something hard to find a new freedom. And that freedom came to me through enlightenment, from literature, from freeing myself from sitting in a cell by blinking it all away And using my mind to free myself. I have a very close friend of mine named Simon Milne from the United Kingdom who was born disabled. And he gets this so much that we've become so good mates that I love that he reinforces this message to me. My freedom is the derivement of how much I love life. And I'm free to blink out all the bullshit, ugliness, hard shit and turn around and embrace the good or I'm free to be ignorant I thought so much about freedom when you boys contacted me I had so much to say about it I've been living it you know I at night I when I drive this taxi and I look up at the stars I almost want to weep because I used to imagine could I ever see them again would they ever let me see them again man
0: yeah, twenty years old. Am I right? When this all happened? Yep. So you're twenty years old. You've just I got been, out at the
1: age of forty two. Man, it's crazy.
0: Yeah, and you've been wrongly convicted of the murder of a police officer.
1: How- no, I, I was I was wrongly accused by a police officer of attempted murder on him, and I was proven innocent. But when he falsely accused me, I became so bleak and empty I made up my own lie about a local homicide I knew nothing about and I told the police a lie about I knew the identity of the murderer hoping to barter my way out of the lie from this police officer and I ruined my life I became just as ugly as they were and out of this I was given a three-day murder trial for the rape and murder of a woman I never met in my life How humiliating. Freedom was so far uh, beyond any concept that I'd ever touch again. I felt like it was never something I would know. And yet, I was so amazed by the transformation that in 1988, when I became the first man in America to seek DNA testing from death row to prove my innocence, I walked into the court. And I educated the court on DNA science and what it meant. I was so free of the stigma of being what they accused me of because I knew I held the science in my hand. When the truth is in your pocket, you're the freest human being on the world. No one can touch you, man. You know the truth so much that you're free from any attack. You're free from any feelings that you have to retort, retaliate. Come back on people. Yeah. I know freedom on so many different levels that when you guys contacted me, I prayed that this chance would come about. I hope everyone listening to this podcast understands that freedom is a three-layered cake, man. It is your gift at life when you're born. It is your purpose in life to make that free choice to be a good part of our society and the species. And the last one is how much you guard your freedom from all the ugliness in life. I spent my life thinking about freedom, man. I spent 23 years imagining freedom, real freedom, while I was the freest prisoner there. I was so free that I developed this beautiful mind by reading thousands of volumes of books, studying psychology for six years, reading all of the world's religions, having enough of a, a purpose in there to help other men, man. Yeah, boy, I was so free that while I sat on death row, I circumnavigated the planet. By sending snippets of my hair to pen pals all over the world and requesting that they put my hair into the oceans so that my DNA was set free. That is how much I thought about this boys.
0: When you went back and told the police officer you you made up that story to try to barter your way out and you get you get put on a, a murder trial, three day murder trial. What yeah. emotions you feel. do you feel? Do you feel angry at the justice system? Do you feel let down? Do you feel hopeless? How do you feel in that moment?
1: You no, know, you feel responsible for the hurt you're causing your family. See, anyone not going through this situation doesn't realize when you've embarrassed yourself like that, And your family is brought to the courtroom with you. It's no longer your feelings about you, 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 unless you're a venal, self-centered bastard. And you can see them on tape when they're in there. They don't care that their family's there. They don't give a shit. They still get a smirk on their face and they're still uppity. You know what I mean? But the ones who are truly struck by the ordeal, it's all about seeing mom being crushed. It's all about watching your father be humiliated by his son being in the docks, being accused.
0: Was there a person in particular that you were thinking of during those trials?
1: Nah, no, I, I didn't get into all that because I was so overwhelmed with trying to figure out what they were saying. It's so humiliating that people don't understand... Um, I walk around and I look very normal. But when I was a little boy, someone took a field stone and beat my head in and it left me with brain damage. If I had a crutch on my arm helping me with a broken leg, you would understand that. If I have a cast on my arm from my hand being broken, you would get that. People don't understand brain injury, man. So imagine when you get excited or upset, all of a sudden, Words don't matter because they don't make any sense at all. You're not hearing anything. That's an affliction called aphasia. And when I was going through trial, I hardly made sense of anything, man. I was so humiliated and I was so upset. And they were using uh, Latin in the terminology in the courts. And I caught only a quarter of what was going on. And I was so humiliated from that moment. I decided later on, I was going to be a master of the English language. I took the dictionary apart, man. It took me three years, man.
2: It's interesting you talk about that because I'm, when I watched the uh, the Fear of 13, the thing that stuck out to me was was the uh, the ten times rule you talked about. When you do, and that you came
1: start- from the booklet. The that, that guard let me go in a cell. A man had committed suicide in the block. The average rate of survival, they kept telling me, no one lasts more than five years in here. Boy, I didn't know what the fuck that meant. You know, I just felt bad for the men that killed themselves. But that officer let me go in and in in the general education development booklet, there was a lesson laid out in writing about memory recall of words. And how if you wrote down a word in its spelling form 10 times, in its definition form 10 times, and then you used that word 10 times in 10 different sentences, you would never forget that word. And I thought, wow, really? So I tried it. And it was a, a real empowerment to me that I had multisyllabic Uh, vocabulary just jump off the charts from this memory recall and my perfect use in conversation of it. And I remember I was before a judge speaking and he stopped the proceedings and he said, what university did you go to? I I said, sorry, sir. I, I never finished high school. They kicked me out. And he goes, that's not possible. There's no possible way you're using allocution in this manner and delivering a pinpoint argument without someone training you and I said yes sir that's true he said well who trained you and I said I did sir standing in my cell politely speaking to myself and they all laughed at me and I felt so good inside man I was like good me, <laughs>
0: good they kept telling you that the average prisoner lasted five years why did you survive
1: I saved my water before the rains came because the water used to turn brown in the pipes. We lived in a mountain and right above the prison, there was a big uh, dairy farm. And when the rains came in the Pennsylvania mountains, it got down into the waters of the old 1800s prison. And you would run brown water through your sink tap. But the guards wouldn't give you no bottle. There was no such thing as bottled water. It was just Evian back then. There was no such thing as purified bottled water. And you didn't get clean water. And a lot of guys were dying of cancer of the stomach, cancer of the pancreas, cancer a lot of suicides, a lot of uh, death by violence. I survived a 1989 riot when they set the buildings on fire, man. that was, oh, my God, imagine you're locked up. And the guards lock you in and leave. They left us alone, man. They went into the, They left the prison. They left us to see if the overwhelming hordes of violent rioters could get in there and kill us or burn us all. They had already burned the block next to us. You can't get out. You can't fight. You got to sit there and see if they toast you, man.
0: What did you have? from a a mental standpoint, a mindset that led to you survive? How did you get through that hopelessness? What was keeping you? No, you
1: don't get it. No, man, you don't get it. I wasn't ever... uh, It's funny. I got on the hope train a few times, man. When you ride the hope train, you don't know where it stops and you don't know where you're going. You're just hoping for a good. So in the end... uh, At one point, I just turned on my 24th birthday and I figured I'm done. You know, I'm not going to make it. So here's how I'm going to find my freedom. I'm going to practice my death speech. So on the day that they execute me, I can speak beautifully for myself. The only thing that really bothered me was when I was on trial, I couldn't stand up and speak for myself. And they made mockery of me. And I decided, okay, the next words you hear from me before you put me to death will be of beauty, grace and elegance. You'll never see me stumble, and my God, I may only have two minutes, but I'm about to wow you with my death speech. So I came up with the concept of my death speech and I began practicing it. But I had to do so in myself to the image of myself so I can empower that person to live long enough to deliver that speech. So when they put me in the cage to fight another murderer and had me fight that man while they stood out there laughing and stuff, I never gave up hope that I would have a chance to deliver my speech. I wasn't living for freedom for the sake of it. I got on with my life. And you made a mistake. I hate to point this out. A lot of people do. You said that they robbed me of years of my life. No one robbed me of anything because the greatest part of my development as a human being was the gift I gave myself in prison. And if they didn't put me on death row, they wouldn't have saved my life. Both my brothers are dead and all my childhood friends are dead. I grew up in the hardest city in Philadelphia, and I'm telling you, none of them were alive and I wouldn't have made it. Thank God they saved my life by putting me on death row and giving me a chance to be free enough to develop as a kind human being.
2: It's a lot to take in there.
1: um... Yeah, well, I lived it every day, man. And the other part was, I didn't just do 8,057 days, man. I did 8,057 days in the most intense solitary confinement settings you could imagine. In fact, what I kept back until I, read, I wrote the book Monsters and Madmen, sitting in Ilchester, England, no less, in Laura's bed, over only three days, I wrote all 54,000 words of this book. And I described an event that took place in which, after I survived 12 years of that first prison, they put us all in a psychological experiment in which 48 of the most twisted human beings were put into a hermetically sealed unit, and the guards that were put in there were just vulgar pigs. The only way I survived this one three-year ordeal, I let them crush my hand in a door so that they couldn't put handcuffs on me and take me out of my cell without it being noted.
2: In that level of solitary confinement, I imagine that obviously the only person you have contact with is yourself. And so you have to be comfortable in your own mind. Actually, I have to correct you again. It's by voice that you get to know the men
1: around you. I have experiences in my life where I lived in a cell next to a man for four years. I never once saw his face, but I knew him. So I had this unique quality about my life that without ever having meet people, like a blind person, I could know so much about them.
2: What you said there about voice, it reminds me of something you talk about in the documentary, and it was the gentleman who sang in Defiance.
1: Wesley and Butch. I wrote a beautiful stage play about it because the tragedy of their life will never be told by my lips. I want their story to be turned into a beautiful stage play called Big House Voices. And I used my education to craft a beautiful love story between those two souls and what they went through. And to witness that moment gave me one of the most empowering feelings in life. And everyone should remember it. If you're a good person and you're a loving person, then hold on to that truth. Like it hit me like a, like like the biggest ray of sunshine. Wait a minute. Just because I'm in hell being told that I'm worthless and being put to death. I, I'm a loving person. What the fuck am I doing being an angry person? I don't care who accuses you anything in the rest of your life. If you're a loving person, smile. Because it ain't you, man. And don't let them make you that. By the accusation, so you've been falsely accused of work of some bullshit that you didn't do, and it's been bugging you because when you go to work, you then turn sour, so that you're giving them the uglies. Don't do that. My mom had this wonderful thing about her. I asked her one day when people were taunting her, and in the courtroom, I said, "Why didn't you get angry at them?" She said, "I have a lovely face. Why on earth would I twist my face in the ugliness and show them that?" so that they could think I was ugly, like them. I thought that was brilliant. That woman taught me so much. Gentlemen, she asked me only one thing. On my second day of freedom, we went to my uh, brother's hospital room to collect him, because he had been hit by an automobile while drunk. And she said to me, she said, Nick, I've lost everything. Your little brother's dead. Mikey, we have to get out of the hospital. Do me a favor, sit down, man, listen to me. So I sat by her knee and she asked me to do one thing, promise her that I would be a nice man so that every time someone spit in her face or called her the mother of a murderer or she felt like every one of her prayers was not being answered, that that it wasn't a waste, that she endured that for purpose. So I think we all need to check ourselves and remember that we owe it to somebody to be here, man. Somebody fed us before we could feed ourselves. Someone cared about us before we could do that. And if we don't have any respect for that, go be a cock to walk. Go be a badass. Be a, an idiot. Go. go ahead. But if you're grateful and you remember that somebody really cared about you, man, enough to give you your life, show them some respect.
0: I think that the theme that I'm gearing is that you have reframed everything so perfectly. And as you just said, but you talked about gratitude. Do you feel that this is something which more people should be practicing?
1: I think if you really want to think about it, isn't this your cinema of a life I have the most romantic love affair because I decided that I'm going to have my love affair be the most romantic one I can imagine. Why not? I sat for nearly a quarter of a decade imagining what that could be for me. And I have it in detail how to play my part from that. If you're a thoughtful person, then you can contrive the most beautiful things without having anything. I promise you, I don't have anything. I work for less than minimum wage, 12-hour shifts. My wife goes out and works as well. But me and her, whew, we're so rich, man, for the contact we have in the lives of other people. And it really is this simple, man. Look, I decided I already know I'm living one of the greatest stories ever. I, I get it, man. And if that's so then dude, I'm going to walk with swagger and I'm going to make the rest of my life like this amazing love story with my wife and children and me being happy because I'm free to decide that. That's why I swear to God, i have been waiting so long to say this, I swear. Like I didn't think I'd ever have a platform or the right podcast or even anyone that would ever even be focused on freedom. It's so eerie that, for fifteen years of my freedom, no one really ever wanted to talk about what freedom truly means to all of us. Oh man, I'm so so grateful you guys contacted me, man. I needed this
0: such a such a pleasure, and thank you so much for for sharing your stories so you sort of mentioned it, but we'd but we love to dig deep into it. So you talked about the solitary confinement, and you mentioned the cages. I'd just I just like to to bring back up. So when you said the cages, what do you mean? Like you were fighting, in right, these so, the guards were ordering you to fight? What was going on?
1: Sadly, America exploded its prison population in the 80s because of the crack epidemic. So Initially, Huntington Prison was an all-white prison guard-run facility. When the state of Pennsylvania hired new officers that were black from the major cities of Pittsburgh and and um, Philadelphia, they didn't like this abuse of white officers on black inmates. So in a weird way, they came to this thing where they decided they were going to have black inmates and white inmates or Hispanic inmates and white inmates fight each other for the amusement of getting this animosity out of the guards. Can you understand this twisted logic? Mm. So if the guards saw the white prisoners getting beat up, then it would be cool because then they could accept the black prisoners getting beat up in front of
0: them. So they're asking you to fight other prisoners, I take it? <laughs> That's
1: a euphemistic way to put the word ask.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, so I'm sitting there and it goes like this, boys. Yaris you're up. Oh, man, a chill goes down your spine. You know what they mean. There's two guards standing in front of your cell. Unlike every other time... You know you're not going out to the exercise cages, which are 10 feet wide and 20 feet long, to go ahead and jog around like a little hamster. They're going in there, and they're going to put another guy in there, and they're going to stand out there, about eight of them. They're going to bet on you and laugh at you and say, get some. And they think it's funny. The worst ones, when they put the mentally ill in there to fight each other. It was terrible, man. It's it's uh, it's just it's heart-rendering is all I can say to see some poor child of uh, someone who's mentally ill being thrown in with a professional-style boxer, and he lasts about a half a minute while the boxer just eviscerates the kid. Well, I made a promise to my mom I was coming home, so unfortunately for the gentleman they put in the cage with me, I violently did what I needed to do. Hey, man, I became cool with a couple of them later on.
0: Did you win many fights?
1: I don't think you get this. I didn't lose any fights ever in jail, and I only got overwhelmed by the guards in numbers. But one-on-one and two-on-one, I never lost. Even the dude that stabbed me so deep, I headbutted him, knocked him the fuck out. So, no, I didn't go down once. I was, all right, look, man, by the time I was 24 years old, I'm six foot two. I got three percent body weight and I'm studying Kundaliga yoga. And I really had a natural Southpaw gift of knocking people out anyway when I was a kid. I had Golden Gloves level training in the Philadelphia boxing gym areas. I knew how to fight from being on the streets. And I had a reason to be angry at first. So when dudes attacked me, they got it. And I mean, I didn't mind giving. I like, I was so bloodthirsty at first. I thought I was going to kill somebody, man. I hate that part, man. I didn't care. I, I had... I got attacked by a garrote being thrown around my neck. They tried to strangle me, broke all the fingers on my hand because I was trying to get the groat off my neck. Have You know, my throat slit, uh, stabbed in the stomach, stabbed in the back, punched, sucker punch while having handcuffs behind my back, like all kind of attacks, man. I was in a prison so hard in Florida, they took all the matches out because they were making electric shotguns and blowing your head off when the guards walk you past the cells, man. I had to be the beast and show them that even though I knew I hadn't killed nobody, everybody that messed with me knew not to ever cross that line because you're going to get the devil. I had to be. At first, I had to be even worse than murderers. Ain't that terrible? They put me in against a guy who had abducted a family and was negotiating their release for fast food. He's such a psychopath. He used to sit there. And laugh at tragedy on the news. And scream out all kind of horrible shit. So this white guard took offense to him. Walked down the tier. Looked in my cell and saw me exercising. Said oh. Okay. Decided that he was going to put me in against this six foot four. 300 pound beast. And I decided that. I'm sorry, but I owed it to my family to come home. So I dislocated his ankle and I used my elbows on his face.
2: Even in obviously, like these these battles, these these tests, it was that it was that promise you you made to your mother that was that was the undying spirit in you.
1: I had to come home if I was not executed. I promised her I would come home, but then she saw me with my hand in a cast all the time, or cuts and all of my face you know and she looked at me once she said what are you doing I said mom I I gotta keep them away you know I can't I can't be vulnerable she said no that's not how we're gonna do this she said stop fighting so in 1989 I had my last fight and for the last 15 years I didn't fight nobody
0: so how close was like how many days away from being executed were you
1: About 60 days.
0: About 60 days.
1: When I I asked to be executed because the person that I loved was suffering from an illness that was robbing him of his dignity, I decided to to cancel this, man. This is enough. Like I said, when I finished reading all the world's religion, I felt like God gave me a gift by introducing me to DNA testing in 1988. And I met Sir Alec Jeffries by becoming his pen pal for 12 years. This professor from Leicester University invented the DNA science itself because of the Colin Pitchfork murder case that happened in Leicestershire in the 80s. And he went around in 85, 86, collecting blood and proving via his new scientific efforts of the identity of Colin Pitchfork as being the murderer. See, I'm never going to forget these facts because I then wrote to the author, Joseph Wamba, who wrote Glitter Dome and stuff like that, because he wrote the book The Blooding, And I read that about Dr. uh, in Leicestershire. And I said, can you give me his contact details? And this is all before the Internet. So this former police detective in Los Angeles gave me Professor... um, Jeffrey's Alex, Alex Jeffries, Jeffrey's um, contact details and I asked him to teach me about DNA science and I was just blown away that this enlightened soul would teach me all about mitochondrial DNA and polymerase chain reaction DNA and I felt like I had this gift in my pocket of this very knowledgeable man who was going to help me use this science to find my freedom.
2: You you mentioned having having you know, having the truth in your pocket is, is, is like gold at times and obviously there was am I right in thinking that you you thought that the truth was coming out and, and there was a, there was a problem I with the I got on the DNA Hope train.
1: Yeah, man. They tried transit. to murder me. No, man, this was like that was like that was happenstance. That's after the look, imagine this. You're talking to your lawyer Friday. And he tells you he's at the coroner's office, which is, you know, the the custodian of official evidence from your case. And he's spoken to the coroner who's assured him that there's a plethora of DNA evidence available and that all he needs to do is go Monday morning and get approval from the district attorney's office. And the coroner himself will see to it that the DNA efforts began in my case. I get on the phone Monday, and I'm told by my lawyer, all the evidence from your case that the coroner seemed to be talking about on Friday is now, oops, gone. When I heard that, I knew. See, they had to come to a conclusion, didn't they, fellas? If this guy's innocent, and we did this to him, that can never come out. So for 15 years, whenever I found new DNA evidence, they destroyed it. So once I got infected with hepatitis C and it looked like I was going to die screaming while my bowels were impacted of food, I decided, Nah, that's enough for me, man. This person that I love so much doesn't deserve that. So I'm going to set them free. It was beautiful. It was poetic. It was all of the things that gives you empowerment in life. Because trust me, both of you, you're dying right now. You're dying from the day you were born. You're dying. You're free to take that as an insult or you're free to make it last as long as you can with good. I got it. So what happens? DNA evidence comes out. And they realized we got it wrong. And instead of being apologetic and trying to help me heal, they went into the denial factor and decided they were going to treat me even worse than death row and take all my books and literature away from me and put me in a mental cell. Because their reasoning was, get this, no human being could survive what they did to me and not be angry at them. They were surely convinced if they opened the door, I was going to get one of them finally and kill them. And I looked at them. I said, you're the one who should be feared, not me. You're the one that broke my face. You crushed my hand. You did all that. I didn't do that to you. Go home and hug your children. They got angry as hell. And they put me in a mental cell. Nothing but two sheets, two towels, and a pillowcase. And that was when I found freedom, didn't I, fellas? What did I do? I told the world, okay, so you think you're going to be spiteful and take everything from me? Lock me in this room? Okay. If you're going to take everything from me, well, I think I'm going to sit here and I'm going to give myself everything. And I've kept my word. Since then, I've given myself a meaning to my freedom. I've given myself purpose in life, and I've used that purpose to give my freedom meaning. What you do to give yourself meaning, hi, baby. My wife just came home from work and gave me a kiss. This is awesome. That moment right there is so real, man. I gave myself enough meaning to have a loving family. My freedom wouldn't mean shit to me without it, man.
0: What could someone that's listening right now do to get that meaning which you talk about?
1: All right, so you feel like you're not getting it. Don't worry about it. Blink all that off. Go out and find someone and be a gift in their lives. Do you know there's so many people out there who really need us for five minutes just to be nice to them? It would set them free from all of the struggles in their heart. It would set them free from all the things that are twined up in their head and hurting them just by you going out and being five minutes of good. And it also is the core basis of neuroplasticity healing. So any PTSD that made you feel initially like you weren't worthy of that will be gone because you get caught up like an athlete in getting that brain reward from meeting the nice new person who gives you that nice new reaction to your kindness. That's why I wrote the kindness approach. Everyone wants to know how come a man who went through that experience that we all just shared could not be bitter? So I finally gave their answer. Sadly, it cost me a SIDS death event in my life and having to teach my wife how to heal from that to be the basis of it But I'm so grateful that I wrote that book because I can actually teach anyone who wants to listen how not to be angry. And it's so simple that when you get it, it gives you chills up and down your spine because when you hear the truth, it rings. It doesn't just come to you in small bits. It jumps out at you. You want to have purpose in your life. Go out and be somebody else's gift that day. You want to have meaning in your life. Fucking be nice to people and develop a charisma about yourself that makes you feel good. And I know the two of you right now, man, I swear, I know the two of you are going to be better brothers and better friends to people because you're going to get it. You're the one now carrying my message. And please keep going with this podcast. And let's make sure that we remind people how precious freedom is. Man, I'll come back every year if I have to to remind people. Don't let me down, man. Do everything I did and do it better than me. Don't look up to me. Look at me sideways like my brothers. And let's fucking do this, man.
0: You mentioned a few things, but they're... Like giving five minutes of kindness and giving back to others and all these different things. And we never really know what someone's going through. So do you think that one, of, one answer is to find things bigger than ourselves like not being hedonistic and like living for ourselves but finding meaning through others
1: yeah because if you think about it i know it's a sad thought um if you can step back from ourselves we're children and we're so childlike that we've contrived this concept in our head that we're not alone floating in space in the dark that this mommy daddy figure of God is out there and they're going to come. We're going to get back to them and it's all going to be sweet because we're, we're being good waiting for them. Do you understand that? Like this is real. We really do as a species don't not want to accept that we are another species on this planet that we're, we're here by design for this purpose. And it's like, we want to argue so much about where we're going that we're ruining the journey by not even getting there to find out. And that's the sadness of what religiosity is doing to us because we're losing the message for the vehicle of the message, which is religion. And when I thought about it, that we don't want to be alone in space, it only came to me because I was alone in my cell and I longed for my parents and I realized that's what we're all doing. We're praying that there's a God out there to reunite us with some feeling that was given to us at birth. Yet we're so ignorant that that feeling given to us at birth is because we're part of a species and we're meant to be here for each other. And we're meant to get our own growth out of doing that. It's that simple by you going out and being a really nice person today to someone else. You get a reward that's built into your brain long before you were born called neuroplasticity healing. And it makes you softer to your own woes. It makes you able to process your own stuff by being the nitpicking chimp that's pulling the nits off the next one that's being bugged by the insect. Get it? Mm -hmm. Step back and look, man. We're a part of a species. We're not special God designed us no differently than the other animals because God loved everything, man. The creation of good doesn't singularly pick out one above all the others. That's our ego. That's why man created God in his own image. If you don't believe me, go up to an Eskimo and ask him to describe his God and he'll describe an Eskimo. Go to Papua New Guinea and look at the stone carvings and their people that they understand. Faces, human. We need to go find mommy and daddy so we made up religion because we don't want to be alone in the dark.
0: So much to to think about there. Dude,
1: that's why I had so many years of this. This was every day of my life thinking this way. I've been given such a blessing and a gift in my life that my life now, with a good perspective, is like this beautiful movie. I'm free from the tyranny of fear that I have to go out and lose my mind over not having anything. When I have it all right before me, just be a nice person. Enjoy whatever you have because you don't know this one factor. 80,000 people died yesterday before I got on the Skype broadcast with you, man. 80,000. That means there's 80,000 immediate families possibly crying and almost, you know, a million family members of that possibly one to four, you know, sitting there crying their hearts out. But we've been caught up in an argument at work over who had more pencils on their desk or some dumb shit like that. So I got the freedom to step back. These many years that I sat in a cell made me. A walking encyclopedic of what freedom is because I take my freedom seriously. I nurture my freedom. I use my freedom for the betterment of my life and I'm blessed to be grateful If you can be grateful, you're blessed If you're ungrateful, you're ignorant to everything good
0: One thing we'd love to cover and um, we'd love to just circle back on is we'd love to go back to this idea of time, and this is heavily linked to freedom. So you said that you were about sixty days away from death row, possible, yeah, possible possibly yeah. having it carried out, right? Mm. How what's what is time going like when you're in that sort of in that sort of state where you know that there's a definitive date or potential date?
1: I wish I had like some really cool eloquence to it, but I was so sick and miserable I didn't care about that. What I cared about was that on the day that they executed me, I didn't falter and stutter and make a fool of myself with my death speech. Mm-hmm. So my focus went well beyond any physicality of my life being returned to me. I just wanted the freedom to speak well and speak beautifully for who I am. And I never knew that years later I would be sitting in Ealing, London, and I'd be in a movie studio making a series of interviews and telling you all this that later became The Fear of 13. And I know it's sad that director David Sinkton betrayed me and all that. I don't care about that. The message is true. We owe it to ourselves, if you think about it, to tell who we are in honesty and fairness To everyone we meet. So we have to do this man. We have to. Figure out who we are. And present that honestly to the world. And in so doing. We find out so much about our freedom.
0: What do you think. About time now. Like what is your mental model for time.
1: I'm a beast. I'm eating time like you wouldn't believe man. Like, I am going at it. Yesterday, I got up. I drove a taxi for 16 hours. I slept maybe an hour there, two hours there. I'm back at it again. You see, I, I recognize I was given an opportunity through this this recent job of driving a taxi to go out and help so many people that it's reinvigorated my mind. And I don't care that I got two collapsed discs when I was working at B&Q and I had a pump truck uh, injure me. I don't care that I got all kind of injuries in prison. People don't know any of that. They know that this super polite taxi driver came and got them, helped them with their bag, got them where they needed to do and made it a really cool ride. And that's my time turned into my purpose. And time for me now is the equivalency of me having a blast. Dude, I got two little girls. I think I'm like like the super dad because I'm the best buddy with them. I got a loving wife and I got a good situation here on the southern coast of Oregon. Why can't I be grateful? Why isn't that enough for me? Like, why isn't it enough for any man to have a normal life when that was my dream? Last night I had an incident. There was these... Lamborghinis and all that that pulled up at a gas station when I was finishing my shift. And I was standing there and I was looking at these cars and I was telling these guys how proud I was of them. And then at one point I told them they didn't understand when they found out who I was that my dream was to have a normal life like them. And when they heard that they were like, what? You Someone could dream about having my life? yeah man, being the guy who's really good I don't care if you work at Waitrose you work on the London Tube I don't care where you work I care that you use your life every day to just throw it out there man
2: one thing I really love about the way you speak on freedom and, and the things we've covered in this podcast is it's very human and you know, it's exploring what it is to be human, and that reminds me of something um, I heard you talk about. And I think the way you're speaking about freedom is is opening people's eyes to things they don't they take for granted. And and one of the things you talk about and how much you appreciate it now is the human touch. And people don't uh, take people take that for granted. Just what what does that mean to you now? Like on a really human level, how do you speak about and think about that? I
1: think that's the one part of freedom that a lot of people don't understand is being closed up. When you uh, withdraw and you don't have human contact, studies have shown from the Brazilian adoption studies and all that that as a human, without physical embrace amongst us that you wither. Literally, your internal organs wither, your psyche withers. People who go out and make an effort to have normal physical contact with others overcome that uh, thing that's debilitating and and destroying of their soul. And I, I realized all of this only because I spent 14 years without anyone touching me from 1989 until 2003. I wasn't allowed to hug anyone. No human hand was allowed to touch me because I was in severe conditions. So I got this amazing gift out of that. When I did have the chance to open back up and I let it in, I understood touch on a level very few could. So anybody who's been closed up for a while, I promise you, if you come up with the nerve to open your arms and embrace another human being, you're about to get a electrifying awakening. You were designed to cuddle and hug and hold other human beings. It feels so warm for because it's real. You're actually passing on the neurons between your brains, the physiological uh, self is being melded as well as the spiritual self. That's why if you've ever seen people gather in mass and hug together, there's an energy. You can feel it. So, anybody who's listening to this podcast who feels like they're truly locked up in a physical sense, that you don't have an ability to trust yourself, if you can find to will... In yourself to open your arms and help others do it I promise you it will make you heal and it will give you your freedom back but you have to make the effort I learned the lesson from that from a man in a wheelchair I was giving a speech in Los Angeles to a company and I was talking about that episode in my life where I hadn't hugged anybody for 14 years and there was a guy in a wheelchair right in front of me and I said oh my god in my head I realized it I walked up and I said just like this and I walked over and I, I hugged him and as I leaned in to hug him he goes nobody hugged me for the last eight years and I was like oh my god it's real people every day on this planet go without years of someone touching them
0: Nick Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was such a privilege to speak to you, and uh, for sure, we will be in touch, my man. We will be in touch. I
1: wish I know. I wish I could come back and do the true journey again. I just never get a chance, and I feel bad, fellas. But this yeah. one, this one blew me away. This was better than what I did with Brian and them because so much more has happened for me to expound upon this, and the platform that you gave me was something I'm truly passionate about. If you notice, 90% of this was about that and not my individual story. Mm. Ain't that brilliant?
0: So the last question we would ask is if you could distill your life lessons and assume that every person on the planet is listening, what would your short but impactful message be?
1: Good is going to win. Thank you so much for this podcast. I can't say it enough. This is one of the ones I've been waiting to do because freedom is so precious to me. I really wanted to show people it is a real commodity, like your anger. And just like I warned you of its precious nature and it could rob you of everything, if you're really good at understanding in a humble way about your freedom, you can be so wealthy in life and so loving. Oh, my God. Freedom is the greatest gift that we can be given. Don't be ignorant and think it's just yours. Your freedom belongs to anybody that loves you, man. Don't messed that up, man. I did.